Welcome to the Nigel Lee Archive, brought to you by Living Leadership, where every fortnight we share with you a sermon from the late Nigel Lee to encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Here's today's message. At the start today is of three Sundays in a row that uh, are going to be slightly different. I've been asked to try and uh, take a look at of where the church is and uh, where it fits into what's happening in the country, um, where we could and should be going in the future, um, and to base it all on the Bible and to complete it in 30 minutes. Um, so that's the, uh, that's the challenge. Uh, if you could turn to 1 Thessalonians, that's the point where we're going to start. Before, I then want to give uh, today, this morning, a bit of an overview of uh, the state of evangelicalism in the UK um, at the present time, and then next week we'll come in more focus to uh, where the church is and the changes that have come recently and where we should be heading in the future. If you'd like a Bible, you put up your hands. Some people know this already, um, and they get brought, amazingly. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, page 1186 in the church. Uh, church Bible. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescued us from the coming wrath. The situation here, just um, briefly, Paul and Silas uh, were beginning the evangelization of Europe. As far as we know, they were the first Christians to cross over from the, the cradle of the gospel in the Middle East, Palestine, and, and to begin to go west. And they'd gone first to Philippi, right up uh, in the north of what we now know as Greece. And they'd preached there and caused uh, a riot, and then been flogged, and then imprisoned, and then there was an earthquake uh, and then they were pointed in the general direction of their bicycles and um, had to leave town. Then lasted very long. Then they walked 
south for about a hundred miles. It makes these guys who are rocking around on the sea on their backside this weekend just look like woods, doesn't it? These, these guys walked a hundred miles and they came to Thessalonica and then they started again and preached the gospel. And this time in Thessalonica, they lasted even less time. Three Sabbath days is all that's recorded when the story is written up in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, perhaps maximum a month. And then there was another riot. Uh, they, in fact, in, in the story of Acts, <laughs> this particular church planting effort lasted only nine verses. And then they were kicked out again. Uh, it was one of the shortest church planting efforts in the whole of the New Testament. I mean, Paul spent 18 months in Corinth. He spent two to three years in Ephesus, but here, three weeks, and then driven out, leaving just a tiny handful of people into whose hearts and understanding he had been able to put so little. How would you feel? I mean, we've had these wonderful pictures of and we've seen the work that has happened, but when you look at what is still to be done, it makes the work that has happened seem good but tiny. And, and this was coming through from the report. You imagine if you're trying to build a new church, only the second in Europe, on the foundation of the gospel, and you've been kicked out after three weeks, you would look back and think, well, it's a ruin, it, it, there's, there's not much there. And Paul had become very concerned. He wondered how much they'd understood, he, he'd wondered what had actually happened, uh, he, he wondered whether everything that he'd built was shortly going to fall down again. So he sent Timothy back to make inquiries and to check up and Timothy goes and, and has a look around and does a survey, and then after a while uh, comes back and reports to Paul the wonderful news that they have in fact become um, a model church. And it's this idea of being a model church for other people to imitate that I want to hook on to this morning. In verse 5, briefly, verse 5, he, he says, The gospel came to you with real power, not with words. In other words, Timothy is reporting that as a result of those few weeks of exposure to the truth, lives had really begun to change. The gospel was having an impact. It was making people different, and they were changing. Verse 6, he goes on to say that a large number of people were clearly converted. He said, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Acts 17, where the story is, is written up in Acts, we read that a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women became believers and the evidence that they had truly become believers is that they were willing then quite joyfully apparently to withstand the bombardments and the persecutions that the lies, the criticisms, the riots that then fell on their heads for being bold enough to acknowledge that they wanted uh, to follow the Christ that they had recently been taught about and then thirdly uh, Paul says he have actually started to spread the gospel out to others. North into Macedonia and south towards Achaia. You see, God did his part, working by his spirit. They had responded by getting truly converted, and there was evidence of it in the face of suffering. And then thirdly, other people around began to receive the, the ripple-out impact. This was a model church held up for us like that um, in the New Testament. In Britain today, we face a very, very uh, 
difficult situation, I think, a demanding challenge. Christianity has been at the heart of our national identity for a very long time, and it is disappearing rapidly uh, in our lifetime. The British are becoming a pagan, secular country all over again. The surface Christian religiosity that has been around for hundreds of years, affecting, for instance, the way people thought about funerals, or the way they think about marriages, or, or the way they think about Sundays, or the way they think about authority, or sex, or war, or children, children's needs in development, and so on. All that is, is disappearing. So that the vast majority of people in this country no longer look on Christianity in the way that some of these Thessalonians began to, as something new and exciting. Instead, it's something old uh, to be discarded. This country is doing something, I think, pretty unique in world history. It is a country voluntarily giving up its Christianity. Christianity was driven out of North Africa in the 4th century uh, by persecution, 4th to, to 7th. It, it was driven out of France following the French Revolution at the end of the 18th century. You realize in, in, um, at, the, at the height of the Reformation, France was a country that uh, was about 48% Protestant. Nowadays, it's only about 2%. And the thing that marked the change was the, uh, the French Revolution in, in many, many ways. Let me give you um, a number of statistics. You've heard before, uh, probably here, about the fact that church attendance in Britain um, is dropping steadily um, at the moment. Twenty years ago, 12% of the British people would have been in a place of worship like this um, on any given Sunday. Today, 7.5%. And in some parts of the UK, it's as low as 3%. 7.5% under any sort of exposure to Christianity. That means that over 90% of the population of this country never darken the door of a church or come within sound of the gospel in this kind of an environment from the beginning to the end of any year. Over the course of those last uh, 20 years, one and a half million church members um, have died at this end of normal life, but another one and a half million have simply walked away leaving no forwarding address. Gone, disappeared. You know, every year, 22,000 people who have been members of churches and involved with churches simply drop out at the time of moving house. Maybe job moves them. Maybe the desire to drop out of church was the reason why they moved. But at the time of, of moving from one place where they're known to another place, they simply disappear out of any sort of uh, church affiliation. During the 90s, roughly a thousand children a week were dropping out of contact with Christian churches in this country. In the middle of the 1950s, half the children of the UK were regularly, every week, in Sunday school. It was astonishing. There was actually a surge of church membership and Sunday school attendance after the Second World War. It may well have been that at the back of many of the minds of, of those that fought in the war, was a kind of desire to, to defend and uphold some of the traditional pieties um, that they thought Britain represented. And so in the 50s, there was a surge 
Nowadays, you would get no more than 4% of the children of the UK in any kind of Sunday school contest. So, for centuries, at least two centuries, the basic Christian education of the nation was in the hands, actually, of, of lay people uh, in the Sunday school. Uh, not the clergy at all, but the lay folks, and that has uh, been disappearing um, since the end of the 50s. And the missing generation in most churches now are the sort of 25 uh, to 50. So it's been a, a story in the last 20 years of um, precipitous decline. At the same time, let it be noted, as the, the rise of Alpha, uh, March for Jesus, um, prophecies of revival, Toronto blessing, and so on around the country. And this problem of Christianity losing its influence and its grip upon the people uh, is right through across the denominations. For instance, the Methodists in Britain, by their own confession, um, expect to go out of business um, in 2020. Their numbers will have disappeared and, and there will be no one left to, to run the Methodist church. 2020 or sooner, according to them. The, the Church of Scotland expects to go out of business uh, in 2033 on present trends that they lost half their membership uh, in the last 20 years of the last century. The Anglicans lost 24% of their membership in the 1980s and a further 23% in the 1990s. And they're now in Britain under 1 million for the first time um, since records began. And actually half the grade 1 listed buildings in the United Kingdom are Anglican churches. So they face huge extra costs. I mean, the Church of England spends over £500 million a year just on keeping the roofs on and the walls up. It's a vast drain on the, uh, on, on the coffers. The charismatic new churches and the Pentecostals have also seen a 16% drop in the last few years um, since, well, let's say the last five years, since the time of, of uh, Toronto Blessing has been around. I sometimes wonder whether, for some, it's the running out of, of the supply of disaffected members of other churches. But certainly there is a massive um, drop. What is happening? It's not simply that the numbers are disappearing. It is the, um, the death of the culture that conferred Christian identity uh, upon the British people. This is the important thing to understand. Right up until the 1960s, there was this Christian religiosity but from the 60s onwards, that which has actually been the ideological foundation of this country for the last thousand years has started to disappear. Where did that leave us? The only type of church uh, in the UK that is actually going against the flow of all this um, and growing quietly unspectacularly growing anyway, solidly growing, churches like this. Um, a number of places um, around the country, mainstream evangelical churches have uh, bucked the trend and gone up, apart from the Orthodox, the Russian and Greek Orthodox, interestingly, but starting from a very small base, they've been growing. But the only other kind of churches are, are folks like this, some with brethren background, some FIC, some Baptist, um, more of that in a few minutes, because there's a number of things that we must face um, about our situation and uh, where all that fits in. So Britain is becoming a missionary situation. 
We are on the mission field. We face challenges now, I think, in secularized Western Europe that are as great as many of the other faith, uh, faith block areas uh, around the world. But the evangelicalism of which we are a part is also changing. And we ought to be aware of some of those changes, and some of them welcome and some of them resist. I think sociologists who examine this would uh, speak of an air of competitiveness between churches and denominations. And it hasn't been the case in the course of our history that when evangelicals are weak, they pull together. When they feel themselves strong, they fight each other. And uh, we notice this perhaps particularly in the student world, where there's all kinds of uh, competition now uh, for the allegiance and the attention of, of many students. Secondly, people take a, a consumerist approach much more nowadays uh, to church. It's part of living in a consumerist uh, society. People pick and choose. Um, some even belong to two churches at once in Britain now. They go, I don't want to even suggest such things to you, but um, some belong to one in the morning and go to another place in the evening, and quite happily, and uh, feel that they're expressing different parts of their personality. In America, 6% now of the American population would tell you that they belong to two different religions. I what goes on in these people's heads, I don't know, but I mean, you can be a, a Christian in the morning and a Buddhist in the afternoon. But um, it, it's, uh, people have no qualms about sort of moving around from church to church and, and from understanding to understanding, uh, much like people visit different supermarkets if there's better offers. Another thing about uh, evangelicalism is that we face uh, many of the churches an aging population. The over 55s are coming back. Partly it's, it's because people live longer, I think. You know, the average life expectancy in 1900 in this country, uh, for both men and women, was 36. I mean, clearly a lot of people lived a lot longer. And that would have been because of the child mortality rate, which would have hauled the averages down. But the average life expectancy in the year 2000 is for men 75, and for women something around 83. In the course of a century, living nearly 50 years longer than they used to. There's a number of women sort of smirking around the, <laughs> around the room. But the elderly, uh, who are creeping back into the churches all around the country, they have more leisure, they have more money, and they have less energy, and they're more threatened by change. It's one of the factors that one therefore has to deal with. Uh, fourthly, churches of our sort often struggle to relate to uh, the postmodern thinking patterns of the under-40s. Prevalent idea that there is no such thing as, as truth because everything is, is relative. Churches being judged more on what they, uh, how they feel than on what they teach and so on. Anything can be tolerated except certainty in our nation. We, we live nowadays at a time when society is very much dominated by image. Think of the election that we went through. It's all the pictures of, of uh, Tony Blair in jeans carrying a guitar and uh, there was poor old Theon being sort of wheeled out like, a, like an early version of Princess Di to sort of look embarrassed but add, add the pretty sexy feel to the Tory party. It was about the only... Anyway, um... 
It was sort of offsetting and really good. But nowadays, the way people think and, and feel is dominated by, by image. The, the British watch an average, an average of four hours of television every day. <laughs> because of an average life, that is 12 years that you've, you've sat vegging in front of the box. The Protestant Reformation was the result of printing, and people began to read, and the Bibles began to spread, and people were influenced by printing and literature right up into this century. In China, Chairman Mao's Little Red Book persuaded people into communism. But by the time you get into the 70s, um, the Ayatollah Khomeini uh, was spreading his message in Iran through cassettes. And so the Iranian revolution in 1979 came about uh, because of what people could, could listen to, not just read. But by the time you came to the 1989 revolution, uh, when communism started collapsing all across Eastern Europe and Russia, that was produced by television. Because the East Europeans, and to some degree the Russians, could actually see what life was like in the West for the first time, and no longer believe the stuff that they were being told uh, from on high. The things that are bringing about the revolution, that are changing the way people think, and this must be of interest to those who are in the business of changing the way people think, that has changed rapidly in, in recent years. Total change. Um, I think there are some other trends within evangelicalism which um, many academic sociologists perhaps wouldn't notice. I think there has been, in the last 20 years, a widespread loss of the habit of Bible reading among evangelicals, especially among the middle-aged and, and younger. Now, this is Bible society statistics. According to the Bible society, 75% of the people in the churches in Britain never read the Bible and unless it's read to them publicly uh, in some kind of circumstance like this. And 66% don't ever read it regularly from one week to the next. That is an astonishing hemorrhage of what has been traditional evangelical spirituality which has kept people thinking Christianly and strong. Sales of daily Bible reading notes from various organizations, Scripture Union, Every Day with Jesus and others, have been plummeting in the last few years. And I suspect that many church leaders are losing touch with Scripture and losing their nerve about preaching it. You may think I'm not going on very much about Scripture in this particular talk, but I simply need to remember some of the others. But this is different. Secondly, I think there are far more what we may call wholeness issues within Churches, people who come in damaged or hurting, with the knock-on effect then of uh, the pastoral care and so on that's needed. There's an epidemic of people with, with self-image problems in and, and around the churches. And this could be the result itself of, of some of the changes in society since the 60s, certainly years of drug addiction or sexual abuse or, or damaged marriages and so on. But we're also seeing an increase in um, what we will call poorly parented adults. Uh, people needing, as grown-ups, still role models and advice and friendship and loads of, of unconditional love. And then there's um, a third thing I, I want to uh, notice, the sheer pressure and demands of work. We live nowadays in a slavery society in many ways in this country. British men have the longest working hours 
of um, any nation in Europe. 60% of British businessmen often or always bring home work in the evenings. And that has an impact, impact then on them as, as men, as, as husbands, as fathers, and as church members, able to get involved and contribute some energy into the life of the church, into evening activities, and, and so on. It, this particularly affects men, not only men, but it particularly does affect men. They have uh, no energy left to play a growing part um, in the church. Certain churches are growing. Um, as we've been singing today, great songs about the sovereignty of God, God reigning, God still in charge, and uh, God is still at work, clearly, don't give up. Uh, the first century world of the Thessalonians wasn't exactly welcoming uh, to the gospel, as we've been seeing. The evangelization of Europe started with three full-scale riots and people being put in, into prison in Philippi and Thessalonica and, and Berea. So Greek football hooligans um, were around um, even before Paul arrived in Europe. Let me give you eight marks of, of growing churches, and then with that we'll finish for this morning, and then we'll come back to uh, thinking of our own church in this situation in more detail next week. Eight marks, then, of, of churches that in this climate are still growing and having an impact, and... Uh, seeking to show some of these biblical hallmarks of a model church that we've just glimpsed at in, in Thessalonica. Number one, leadership needs to be in the hands of those whose gift is leadership. And that is not the same as being a pastor or teacher. For a long time we've had a model of, of the pastor-teacher type of person being the one that leads the church. I think that pastor-teacher type, clearly a biblical gift, and one doesn't undermine them. Why, why would I do that? But I think they often have the wrong model in their heads for the new kind of missionary situation. We're all on the mission field. People who think, you know, I'm not going to go abroad because I don't feel called to cross-cultural mission work. Tough. <laughs> cross-cultural mission work has come to you. Now the cultural gap between people who believe what this church believes and stands for and the 90% of the folks around, the cultural gap is growing. And uh, we, we need all of us, I think, probably, to, to begin to learn some of the lessons of cross-cultural bridge-building communication if we're going to have uh, any great impact. And leaders um, think differently from the pastor-teacher type, that the pastor-teacher kind of person expects outsiders to come in and sit down and be looked after, and sit quietly, and graze, see, on, on the good food that is um, being provided. But obviously when over 90% of the country's population has signaled that they don't have the intention to have anything to do with church, then that model won't do. We need, as a church, this is a profound thing, which isn't simply solved in, in, in one talk or one um, prayer care group, midweek group meeting, we need to think through how church is to be moved from its earlier maintenance model, maintaining uh, the hope and the faith and the life of the people that come in, to a much more of a mission model, if we're to have an obedient impact upon our culture, which has turned its back. And I think there is a New Testament gift of leadership. Sometimes in the translations, 
of those gift listings that you get in the New Testament, this word is translated administration, which tends to make people think in terms of sort of photocopiers and, and minutes and, and uh, sweeping up, putting the chairs away and all, all that sort of thing. The word actually is connected to the Greek word for a steersman on a ship. Someone who is um, having the effect of, the, of moving the thing one way or another. The growing churches have visionary leadership. They're, they're change makers and they're good at fostering vision and stimulating initiative in, in other people. And I put that first because I think it's critical. Secondly, uh, people in growing churches develop significant relationships. And just think of the way in which our fragmenting society, where there is no longer any moral consensus about what's right and wrong, people now find their little group with which they have shared values in a very small circle. Friendships matter enormously. And it is obviously much more than just a sort of friendly welcome at the door and a smile and the giving of a piece of literature and, and that's the end of it. We probably need to think together about how we restructure what time we have for the fostering and encouraging and developing of of, of this kind of friendship, because it is a deep desire for community and belonging in our society around the sharing of lives, the, the prayer partnerships, the, the shared uh, projects, and so on. In a world of corporate, faceless, often business, and uh, people feeling that uh, they don't matter too much, this is something that is becoming more and more important, and it's something that the church ought to be able to, to provide. By this shall people know that you are my disciples if you love one another, said Jesus in John 13. And then thirdly, growing churches have an unshakable commitment to the Bible. You can see that up and down the country. The churches that have a confident teaching of the Bible at their heart, they, they keep growing. They, they buck this trend. And those that don't begin to die. Jesus himself said it. He said, you cannot build on sand if you want something to last. You you have to build on the rock of God's word. I'm afraid that evangelicalism in this country, often, wherever you look at it, is in danger of slipping back into the rather unstable and mushy pietism of the 1930s. And it took decades for people like Martin Lloyd-Jones and John Stott and uh, Harold Sinjin and Lee Samuel and others in their different denominational circles to dig us out of that. We, but we need to find new ways of helping people engage with Scripture. I'm beginning myself to become more and more uncertain about the lasting effect of some of the ways in which we preach and teach. I think we need to think out how do we uh, not simply switch off, have coffee, go, and, and it's gone, and two days later cannot remember much of what was said. We need to engender discussion about how we are changed by the word of God, which is God's way of changing people. Actually, at growing churches, it seems to me, around the country, and in all the surveys I've done, have a commitment to making disciples. It is what Jesus did. That is not the same as just doing evangelism, but helping people to grow and learn and change and apply the stuff, uh, probably in some kinds of accountability um, relationships. Induction courses for newcomers, uh, people learning about their gifts, 
learning and being helped to teach Sunday school and preach and so on with with sort of uh, mentoring and instruction as you go. So growing churches have a, a developing others mentality right at the heart of, of who they are. So they, they tend not to encourage passengerism of the sort where you just come, drop your bum on a seat and, and uh, warm it for an hour and then go and, and nothing is changed until uh, seven days later. Fifthly, growing churches have worship times in which God's presence is it truly felt, is real. I don't see how we can uh, get out from that. This morning, the, the, the uh, music praise leaders singing great songs, helping us. The intention is that we come in and tune, we settle down, we, we talk less, so that our spirits actually reach out to God and are reaching out from the beginning of our time together. I know that people come from rows and, uh, you know, they, they, kids have been horrible and uh, the potatoes that you went to, to peel all turned out to be moldy and, and, you know, all kinds of things can happen. I know. In, in, in the course of, of the run-up to a service. But we, we do, together, want to draw near to God and be humbled and be moved and experience His Spirit at work. And this isn't just manipulation. It's not merely singing. It's, it's God on the move. But our hearts need to be softened and, and to be responsive and to engage and to learn to delight in Him and to be helped to do that. Sixthly, Growing churches pray, but not necessarily in the old pattern of one central prayer meeting that everybody uh, turned up to, and Brother Ebenezer sort of took 20 minutes, and then uh, Brother Ezekiel took another 30 minutes. No, early morning prayer meetings, midweek prayer meetings, lunchtime prayer meetings, after services prayer meetings, in the evening, prayer partnerships. But prayer marking the life of the church, but probably done in a much more um, with a group of friends, fragmented, probably personally committed kind of way. That's that's the way it will work. Preaching is not enough to change churches. We need some dew to fall sometimes on people's hearts and minds and spirits. And it won't happen unless we are real in our response to preaching and we seek God in, in prayer. The last two quickly and then I must Stop, otherwise we'll have an invasion from the kids. Seventhly, a strong commitment to giving. Marks growing churches, as far as I can see. And teaching about stewardship, it's real counterculture. Dipping in the pocket, sacrificing some of the things you might otherwise have done, giving generously. We want to live in an atmosphere of generosity and sacrifice and mission so that we develop the people that come in and, and join us and are willing for the ride and the risk. We develop in them uh, a commitment and a capacity to, to really give. And finally, verse eight, uh, the, the eighth thing, sorry, um, a willingness to embrace change. Groups, institutions that don't change nowadays uh, are going to die out very quickly. A willingness to try things forgivingly. Sometimes you try things, but they don't work. Sometimes you try cooking a certain menu and it doesn't work. And you, you get through it with the family and you make a private resolve never to try that again or to 
add some new ingredient this next time or whatever. Well, and then they were reasonably forgiving. It'd take half an hour or so, but they forgive in the end. Well, we, we need to live in a church that is um, willing to try new things. I remember, I think, Don Franks, it was years ago, say, yeah, we're all in favour of change, so long as it makes no difference. A model church. This is the kind of stuff that I, I would love for you to um, debate, talk about, for it to filter into our prayer care group, talk about this stuff over coffee, because we don't believe that it's right, as, as this congregation, soon to be separated from the other congregation in Albert Street, that to think that we can simply just carry on. There are many, many good things that God has done amongst us. But we cannot, in all respects, simply carry on as before and think that that is enough. There's quality to be improved all over the place. And no one person's insight is enough. And we need to share in this gentle, forgiving, but utterly purposeful vision together. Let's come back to um, 1 Thessalonians 1. At the end of verse 8, your version that we read, your faith in God has become known everywhere. I like Eugene Peterson's translation from the message. The news of your faith in God is out. We don't even have to say anything anymore. You are the message. May we be a great encouragement as a church, in the end, a model for many. Other churches, other people, folk who are at the moment lost, who come in and find here something in the kingdom of God lived that begins to meet some of the deepest heart cry of their soul. I suspect within a year or two we may even need to be talking about um, dividing again and, and thinking in terms of planting other churches because we're, we're fairly full even as it is. All the people that write his books say if you're more than 80% full psychologically, outsiders who come in hardly think that they can find a place here. So there's all kinds of things that are probably coming uh, on ahead of us. You turn from idols, says Paul. I'm thrilled about it. To serve the living, the true God. And to wait on tiptoe, expectant for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he raised from the dead, to come from heaven. Let us be doing better in so many of these areas than we are when the Lord comes, if he comes uh, in our lifetime. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray that it would fire up energy, thought, listening as well as speaking in our hearts and, and minds in these months of transition and change and growth. Help us be ready for new things, but help us too, Lord, to be wise. And like the Bereans, to search the Scriptures so that we build on the rock. For your glory's sake. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. The Nigel Lee Archive is brought to you as a podcast by Living Leadership. For more information on the Nigel Lee Archive or Living Leadership's other ministries, please visit www.livingleadership.org.
God bless.